Book six, The Wonders of Weaving. After listening to the muses' stories for quite some time, Athena realised that a little bit of praise for herself wouldn't go amiss. She remembered Arachne, a basic girl from Myonia who wasn't all that special, but who was so talented at weaving many people insisted only Athena herself could have taught her. Athena hadn't, of course. I'd like to see Athena compete with me, Arachne often stupidly said. Let her try. So Athena did. Disguising herself as an old woman, complete with grey streaks in her hair, she tottered up to Arachne and said, With age we gain experience, Arachne. Here are some advice. Admit the eternal goddess, who has spent literally billions of years honing her skill, admit she is superior and she will forgive you. Pfft, fuck off, where did you come from? Arachne snorted, barely giving the old woman a glance. If Athena cares so much, let her come and tell me herself. All right. Athena revealed her true form, I hope in a puff of smoke, and towered over Arachne. Here I am! Unlike most of the other mortals we have come across so far, Arachne wasn't scared in the slightest. If anything, this was exactly what she had been waiting for. She rushed forward to her loom, Athena just behind her, and the great weaving competition commenced. As you might expect, both entries were brilliant and ridiculously complicated. Athena wove a depiction of her beating her uncle Neptune to win Athens as her home, complete with a sacred olive tree she created, and a personified image of victory, in case her point wasn't clear. She also added an extra random mythological contest to each of the four corners of the tapestry, just to remind Arachne of her, and I quote, insane audacity. Arachne, on the other hand, illustrated Jupiter's kidnapping of Europa, just in case you managed to forget that one already, and a whole other bunch of random myths that have no bearing on this story, so we're just going to move on. Neither Athena nor personified jealousy herself could find fault with Arachne's weaving, but her impudence really had been too much to bear, so Athena had the tapestry destroyed. She also smacked Arachne on the head a few times, just, you know, for good measure. Ow! If you don't stop that, I'll hang myself right here and it'll all be your fault, Arachne yelled. Athena paused for thought. She didn't much like the idea of inducing suicide. It might slight her reputation somewhat. But there was something poetic about Arachne dangling from the threads of her own demise. So she turned her into a spider and let her weave indefinitely for the rest of her life. Out and about in Lydia, the people were horrified. Niobe, a good friend of Arachne's actually, was especially disturbed, but somehow these people never learn. One afternoon, the women of Thebes were encouraged to offer sacrifices to Leto, the mother of Artemis and Apollo, because the daughter of Tiresias, Manto, ran about in one of her prophetic frenzies and basically told them all to do so. All of the women obliged, of course, except for Niobe, who strode through the streets, angry in that beautiful way women can be, and she announced, 
Why exactly are we worshipping Leto when we could be worshipping me? I mean, it's not like she's all that special. She has twins, sure, but I have seven times this number of children. Seven boys and seven girls. I'm blessed. Who can deny it? And have I mentioned that as the queen of Cadmus's palace and the granddaughter of Zeus, I'm basically untouchable? Fortune literally can't touch this. I have so many children, so many good things I can't lose. So take off those stupid wreaths and ignore this raving witch. Surprise, surprise, Leto wasn't best pleased when she heard this. Standing on the edge of a very high mountain, she cried out to her children, Who does this whore think she is? She basically said, you two don't count. Well, do you know what? Let me tell you. It certainly counted when I had to spend hours pushing you out of my... All right, mum. All, all right. Apollo leapt in. The longer we talk here, the longer we delay her punishment. Just, just come away from the edge, would you? At this point in time, Niobe's seven sons were riding horses, having a little game among themselves. It was very convenient that they were all together because it made it far easier for Apollo and Artemis to kill them all in bulk. When rumour finally reached Niobe about what had happened, she couldn't believe it. She couldn't believe the gods had it in them to do such a thing. Clearly she hadn't had a copy of the Metamorphoses to hand. Her husband, Amphion, killed himself when he found out what had happened, which would hardly soften the blow if you'll pardon the pun. Everyone felt sorry for Niobe now, even her enemies, and I imagine she had quite a few with that attitude. And yet, despite being surrounded by dead sons and dead husbands, Niobe didn't learn, and she called up to Leto, I still win! I still have more children than you! I mean, she was literally asking for it, wasn't she? Moments later, all her daughters were struck down too. Niobe actually begged the goddess to spare the last one, the youngest, but why she thought this might actually work is beyond me. Her grief turned her to stone, so at least she wouldn't have to feel anything anymore. And the end result was that mortals worshipped Leto for more than ever out of pure fear. Win-win. As so often happens, mortals began to swap stories of Leto's fearsome acts. One bloke recalled a tale where, as a child, he had been walking with his father and come across a great pool, together with an altar. It was here that Leto had first come, running from Juno's wrath, I mean, aren't we all, and given birth to Artemis and Apollo. Tired and thirsty from all her running around the universe, she noticed some peasants working by a lake and asked them to give her a drink. A little worshipping, approaching her on all fours and begging for mercy wouldn't go amiss either. She claimed she was so thirsty she could barely speak, though she managed to get her words across pretty well. The peasants, who were evidently very stupid, laughed at her, pushed her away, and even jumped up and down in the water to muddy it and make it undrinkable. Raging, Leto decided they clearly liked water far too much, and so turned them all into frogs. This story not being enough, Another bloke reminded them all of a time Apollo ripped the skin of Marcius and turned him inside out 
for beating him at a music competition. All in all, the people agreed among themselves that Lita and her kids weren't really to be messed with. The only mortal who felt a little bad for Niobe was Pelops, her brother. He had an ivory shoulder, which is pretty cool and a decent example of ancient prosthetics. His father cut him up into little pieces when he was born, as you do, and the gods kindly stitched him back together again, but no one could find his left shoulder, so we got an ivory replacement instead. Neat. All the neighbouring kingdoms came to Thebes to pay their respects, but there was a bit of a delay with Athens because they were in the middle of a war. Terius, a Thracian, came to the king of Athens at the time, who was Pandion, to offer his support. He was married to Procne, Pandion's daughter, a princess of Athens, to seal the deal, but the marriage was a little bit ominous from the start. For one thing, only Furies came to the wedding, which isn't really the best sign. Anyway, the couple had a son, Ites, and five years later, Procne asked Terius if he would fetch her sister, Philomela, from Athens for a visit. Terius saw no reason why not, so he popped over to see his father-in-law in Athens, and, of course, he noticed Philomela. How could he not? She had to be the fittest thing since Ambrosia. Terius could barely contain himself. Thracians are notoriously emotional, apparently, and on top of this, he was a very passionate person. It was just the way he was made. It was hardly his fault. Suddenly, he could think of nothing but shagging his wife's sister. Impatient to get on his boat, he reiterated again and again how desperate Procne was to see her sister, and Philomela, entirely believing him to be the devoted husband he appeared, added to the mess by begging her father to let her go. For the benefit of her sister, who she hadn't seen in so long, the king was likewise blind to Terius's illicit schemes, and he agreed. Now, the story here is particularly unpleasant. I'm going to skim over it, but I just wanted to warn you. Essentially, Terius got Philomela on the boat after a tearful farewell with her father. He raped her. She attacked herself and threatened to tell, so he cut out her tongue, kept her captive, and told her sister, this being Procne, his wife, that she had died. Philomela was kept captive for a year. She eventually came up with a plan where she wove out her story and got a slave girl to smuggle this to her sister. Procne, being wise, contained herself when she unfolded the tapestry and read what had happened and came up with a plan for revenge. It just so happened to be a Bacchic festival that evening. Pretending to be high on Bacchic thoughts or wine or whatever it was, Procne decked herself out in vines and went whirling and chanting through the city until she discovered her sister's hidden chamber. She grabbed Philomela, wrapped her in some ivory and smuggled her back to the palace. Don't you worry, Procne had held her sister close. I'll destroy that bastard if it's the last thing I do. I just haven't decided how. But then the answer came to her, literally, in the form of her son, Ites, who would be about six years old. Doesn't he look just like his father? Procne mused. Without another thought, she grabbed a sword and drove it into his side. 
Philomela joined in, slitting his throat, and the two set to work, chopping him up and alternating in boiling him and roasting him on a spit. Procne called Terius for dinner and sent all the slaves away. Terius tucked into his feast very happily from his throne, and indeed he enjoyed it so much he called for itties. Oh, no need to bother with that, Procne smirked. He's already <laughs> with you. The fuck do you mean, woman? Terius put down his knife and fork. It is. Philomela then leapt forward, covered in the child's blood, and brandished his decapitated head in Terius's face, so there could be no mistaking what had happened. Terius wasn't best pleased when he worked this all out, as you might guess, and he tried to kill the two women with his swords, but they changed into birds and flew away. So there you go. When Pandion heard what had happened to his daughters, the grief killed him. Erechtheus was the next king of Athens. Boreas desperately fancied one of his daughters, Erythia. Though he was a Thracian, and we have heard that Thracians get quite emotional, he tried to check his temper and attempted to actually be nice to the girl and take her out on a couple of dates, tell her how he felt, rather than straight up kidnap her. How generous of him. Unfortunately, Erythia wasn't really interested. Why did I bloody even bother? Violence is literally all I have, Boreas raged. He shook out his wings. Yes, he has wings. Just, just go with it, guys. And kidnapped Erythia anyway. They had twin sons together who aren't all that remarkable at all, aside from the fact that they actually had awkward yellow feathers on their shoulders, inherited from their charming dad. They probably looked a bit like chickens. I mean, I'm getting off track. I'm getting off track. They weren't all that remarkable except that they joined the first ship ever built in the quest for a certain golden fleece. <laughs>